There's no wrong security decision except the one that you didn't make. Because if you understand the risks, a perfectly acceptable security decision is I accept those risks. But not understanding those risks, you are still accepting it. Welcome to episode two of Trust Versus. I'm Robert Booker, High Trust Chief Strategy Officer. And I'm Jeremy Huval, High Trust Innovation Officer. Today's topic is trust versus perception. On the show, we've got top cybersecurity myths and misconceptions, how both security and compliance functions desperately need a PR campaign, how security theater is bad for airports and worse for your business, and the reason why every control has to be value add in both fact and perception. That voice you heard at the top of the episode belongs to Mark Nunakovin. Mark's basically a deep thinker in the cybersecurity space. He currently works as a principal for the Amazon security team at AWS. Hey, Robert, why does perception matter to trust? Like, why even give this airtime on the podcast? You know, I think perception matters. It matters to security. It matters to compliance. And it especially matters around whether I trust you or not. We could have the best program around, but still fail if perception doesn't match reality. When that happens, stakeholders like the people I serve, the end users in the organization, and the people that manage the company and provide funding for my programs lose confidence. I can't think of a better guest than Mark to talk about stuff like this with. He's been a security educator and practitioner for years. He's got a YouTube channel. He does a lot at AWS and he brought in some fun perspectives. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Let's jump in. Mark, how would you describe what you do? And you've got a lot of stuff online that makes it clear that you're passionate about cybersecurity and about spreading the good word of best practices and awareness. Like It's hard to put your efforts into one box. Yes, it is very hard to figure out what I actually do. Um, unfortunately, my boss has also said that to me and I'm like, whoa, wait, no, no, no. No, uh, jokes aside, I've been doing cybersecurity uh, like both of you for a very long time and realize that there is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of opportunity. It's something that I'm doing now working for Amazon's uh, security team, um, helping, uh, you know, build the, the practice across all of Amazon and externally trying to uh, be active out in the community, um, whether that's encouraging more people to get into cybersecurity, going broad with, you know, public service announcements or sort of the, the in the trenches kind of education about tackling things like passwords or cloud security or what have you. So really it centers around that education and understanding piece. I think the reality is that we love to talk about the super complicated or interesting or niche, uh, you know, attacks or techniques. If you look at any conference, it's almost always about the latest attacks, this threat actor, that threat actor, not about like, hey, here's how to go to have a conversation with people to make them aware how much benefit they can get from making sure that people understand why they're taking certain actions. It's not directly a security thing, but it has way more impact than a lot of security stuff. One of the things that we've been kind of foot stomping as of late is the foundational cybersecurity controls being just so much more important than some of the more sexy stuff. Like to your point, hey, we've got a new quantum cryptography standard that you as a small business need to start thinking about right now. Well, maybe, but maybe you should make sure you've got the foundations nice and buttoned up before you chase kind of the more exotic risks. Not to say that quantum cryptography is not important. But for the small business and for the everyday business, for the everyday risk assessment, there's something to be said for just the, let's not overcomplicate it. Couldn't agree more. You know, the quantum cryptography thing is very interesting because 
from the math perspective, yeah, we need to start worrying about this right now. But that entire threat model is based on somebody being able to store today's encrypted communications long enough to actually get a quantum uh, computer with appropriate algorithm, um, which isn't that complicated, it turns out, but the algorithm, the quantum computer part is quite complicated. Uh, but once that's in place to then decrypt those old communications and, you know, Jeremy, spot on a small business, not really worrying about their data today being accessed in a decade from now. Someone else, maybe, but most people, no. Yeah. Yeah. And risk assessments are hard enough to get right. <laughs> we were trying to think of just possibly fallacies or areas where people might just have assumptions about, you know, what do you need to do to establish trust? And um, this topic of perceptions came up and, you know, we actually had a debate uh, as we were preparing for this episode. Actually, it's like, are we talking about the perception of the consumer? You know, and do they care or not care? Are we talking about the perception of us as practitioners who are responsible for doing something important to secure the company? We think about what the public thinks about this and like, do the people we, we serve, are they, are they fully on board with this concept of, you know, being secured or maybe the overcomplicated aspect we, we put into it? And what's their perception of risk? And that's a really good and I think profound question um, because I think people fundamentally do care, but I also think they have a radically different view of technology than those of us in the field. Security is based on the assumption that things don't actually work the way we think they do. Right. We have an inordinate amount of complexity in our technology systems, even just recording this podcast, the amount of things that have to go right and the amount of different protocols and technology stacks and things that we're relying on to make this work. Um, you know, when you step back for a minute, you're like, it's, it's kind of miraculous that it actually works at all, let alone works as intended. And really security is that aspect of making sure that it does continue to work as intended and only as intended. And from our practice like from from the security practitioner perspective you go okay i know all these different things that go wrong i know all these different types of attacks and things like that whereas from that consumer perspective i think it's almost the opposite it is just like yeah this works i press a button and i'm having a video chat with somebody across the world and they assume that that's all that is possible from that like you you take out a fork and you know what that fork can is capable of you're like great i can eat my food with this it's not a question of like, hey, if I was really evil, what could I do with this fork? It reminds me of the very first red team engagement I ever contracted early in my career. And the, um, you know, they were successful, as most red teams are, at least when you start a program. And I remember looking at the, looking at the challenge, the, the facts don't matter, but the, 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 how, they, how they penetrated the system. And it wasn't sophisticated. It was literally the thing, kind of the backdoor thing that everybody would have assumed was okay. And, um, but then you look at it, you say, I mean, who would have thought to go and look at a system in that way? And I think it goes to your point about, you know, we assume it's going to work as a security leader. I had to learn that lesson the hard way, you know, through testing and validation, thankfully not the really hard way, like some others have. Your example reminded me of one that stuck with me and has stuck with me for, you know, two decades now. Um, I was in a training session, um, here in Canada with our RCMP uh, who were teaching, we were learning about doing physical threat assessments on buildings and facilities. And the instructor of the time, uh, had said he had, you know, had been given this course for years and he had yet to enter a non 
high class, uh, classified building. So just the normal public service government buildings. He'd yet to actually enter one on the books. Every time he gave the course in those buildings, he just found a way in and then showed up. And everyone was always like, oh, what, what, what are you doing here? We thought we'd have to come down and get you. He's like, yeah, so lesson one, um, what you thought about like this being, you know, an access only floor, it's not. It was super easy. I got in in two minutes. And I'm like, yep, that's a great example of everyone thought you had to badge in and everyone knew that, you know, it was only people who were allowed to be here. Yet this person just kept walking in. What cybersecurity fallacies or myths or assumptions that are wrong do you think are out there that both individuals and businesses step in more than they ought to? There's two that pop to mind all the time, which is passwords and phishing. And so we teach people two things time and time again about passwords uh, and, and, and about phishing. And the first for passwords is the absolutely absurdly ridiculous needs to be, you know, a, at least a capital uh, symbol, a number in there, eight characters or more. You know, we've all seen the, the basic standard, this password needs to be secure. And then there's a whole bunch of calculators for different UIs that'll say, hey, you picked a really good password. We've known for a long time that that is not actually true. Uh, it doesn't hold up mathematically. It doesn't hold up through practice um, because that generates for a number of reasons, but primarily it generates bad user behavior. We all know people with, you know, password, whatever, one, two, exclamation, just keep putting in there, you know, to make it memorable. And so the reality is the longer you can make a password, the stronger it is. You know, NIST finally updated the guidelines a couple of years back to include, you know, say, hey, go up to 256 characters. I have no idea why they actually put an upper bound on it. Should we just go as long as you can? And it's funny when you trace the history of that back is it goes back to a very early LDAP, you know, directory implementation uh, that ties into like Novell and early work, Windows for Workgroups Day where they couldn't store a password past a certain size. And they, that was given those technological constraints that the programmers had decided the password formula made the most sense and sort of delivered the best mathematical results at the time. That was 35 years ago. Things have changed technologically, yet that's been ingrained in us. And so we've been hit with that time and time again. And the second one that really gets me is phishing. Because we tell people when you're looking at an email, look at the URL and determine whether it's bad or not. Now, now first of all, being very generous and polite to, to my colleagues and friends within the security community, obviously none of us have ever looked at an email from a marketing department. Because those are all ridiculously long, complicated, like basically someone's writing a novel in a URL with all the tracking codes. There's no way you can figure out if that's uh, legit or not, let alone all the top level domains. We're over 200 now. It's just not a human solvable problem to look at a domain and say, that's a good one. I'm okay with clicking on that. And yet we continue to teach people to take that action, which is frustrating for them. I think a better approach for that one where, you know, passwords change the longer, the stronger for phishing, it's if you click on something and it asks you to take an action, then you should probably stop. If you click on a link and it says, hey, log into Gmail, stop. Download this file, stop. If it goes to a web page, as long as you've been doing some other security hygiene stuff, you should be okay. But the biggest thing for phishing is we have tools and controls that should catch that because it's not a really a human solvable problem. So I think those are for me the two biggest myths that continue to perpetuate. Um, but I'm really curious, you know, for, for both of you, for Jeremy and Robert, what have you guys bubbled up in your discussions, especially around fallacies and myths? 
One of the one of the fallacies, and I don't know if these follow really the clean definition of fallacy and the thought fallacies, but the one about my security is strong because I haven't been breached. There's there's this exact maybe more in the the executive space and less in the CISO space, but look, we make these investments at the same level approximately every year, and we haven't been breached yet. So that level of investment and that level of controls is good enough because we haven't been breached. And the fact is, you maybe haven't been breached because you're good enough, but you maybe haven't been breached because you're lucky and you just haven't come across the radar yet to that particular threat actor who might be perfectly capable of stomping you, right? There's this myth that says, I'm too small to be attacked. Like, I'm a small business. The, the bad guys don't care about me. They have bigger fish to fry. That is such an easy thought trap to fall into. And it's just not true, especially with stuff like, I don't know, AI-assisted spear phishing now, where the bad guys can look so tailored at scale, where they haven't been able to before as, as easily at scale. So I think this I'm too tall, too small to be attacked mentality uh, while it may have worked for a lot of people for a long time, it's eroding. It's interesting, Jeremy. I like the I like the way you framed it as a maybe a, a management conversation because I think perceptions will be different for the consumer from management teams. But I, the one I think we heard early, maybe it's maybe we've moved past it now. I hope is that cybersecurity is an IT issue. You know, I'm going to have my technology team have it, or or frankly, even the seat I've sat in, it's the it's the CISO's problem, and I think. Most people that have sat in the seat would say, I can only do it with the support of the organizations. You know, the other one is like, uh, and Jeremy, we struggled this, with this when we built some of our recent uh, essentials capabilities, like, you know, which, what were the most essential cyber controls that organizations needed assurance around? And so the fallacy of just having just the minimums good enough. And, you know, I think sometimes, and even auditors in the past have said, well, you know, you have antivirus, you have anti-malware, you mentioned phishing, Mark, phishing, you know, phishing prevention program. Or you have good security awareness training, that's good enough. You know, you've got the basics covered and you know, I think we might agree those are those are not complete enough. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one too, because I think there's there's sort of this corporate policy trap that people say if I comply with my corporate policy across all my systems, my policy's gotta be right, therefore my security is good enough. And I don't know, like an easy example is a password policy. If my password policy says I gotta have complexity and 12 characters and it's gotta be, you know change that often. And I apply that corporate policy across all of my systems. You're, you could be failing to match controls to the risk of the system, the inherent risk for the system. So if my corporate policy is the same, regardless of whether my system is internet facing or whether it houses electronic protected health information or cardholder data, maybe those minimal password controls aren't good enough. And maybe you should be doing MFA. So this is fallacy of like minimal security controls being good enough but they don't match the risk. I think that could be a common problem too, that people are stepping in and every day and don't know it. I, and I think, you know, the way you just phrase that, I think it really highlights there is a, the way I would sum that up is there's a fundamental difference between CYA and actual security, right? And so I have met the minimum bar will be, you know, you can straight face that on a press release, uh, right? Or to the board or whatever the case may be. But as you said, it's not good enough. It doesn't match your risk model. But you did everything that you were supposed to. And then you realize, like, oh, wow, no, I did not match at all what I was supposed to be doing for my risk model. Um, you know, but also I get it because the, you know, to your point, Robert, when 
the view, you know, that myth of the view that it's the CISO's problem or the security team's problem. And that's, you know, on us as a security community as well. For the longest time, we haven't brought people into the fold. But when you do the math um, on that one, as far as the number of people on your team versus the rest of the company, there's no way that holds up. So if you sit there and go, okay, you know, uh, Mr. and Mrs. CISO, you're responsible, your team of 10 is responsible for all of our security needs uh, for our enterprise. And our enterprise has 6,000 people, which is about the ballpark ratio, by the way, one to 600 for security people to, uh, to normal, like non-security employees. There is no way 10 people can be accountable and responsible for the systems, work output and safety and security of those 6,000 people. It just doesn't make any sense. Yet everybody is sitting around the table going, yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, CISO, it's your problem. Yeah, follow-up I have on this, this whole theme, the perception of compliance versus the perception of security or cybersecurity or both. Thoughts on that? I will say this, having considered my word choice carefully and fully aware of the context of the podcast um, and say this with all support uh, for the communities involved, the only people who have done worse at positioning themselves in the functioning of a modern business than the security team is the compliance team. And by that, what I mean is compliance serves a valuable role and it's not simply to get somebody off your back or to be able to point and say, we are compliant with this. Compliance to me is a larger community or group. So PCI is a good example, um, right? Simple to understand for people who aren't in the weeds payment card industry, the major players have come together and said, this is the minimum bar we will tolerate for you handling this type of data. You need to adhere to this if you are going to be processing payment card uh, information. But then compliance plays a more important role than just meeting that minimum bar. It is filling in a major gap in security in that it's checking our work. We've so rarely check our work in security. We'd go, hey, we rolled out all these controls. We're done. Like, well, no, are they working? Are they actually actively doing what you think they're doing? Because things change, right? And by the time, especially in a larger corporation, you roll out a control, by the end of that weeks long or month long effort, things have changed. Is this still the appropriate control? Is it doing its job? You know, is the environment in which it's been configured different now? And so compliance gets you in that attitude and in that practice of checking your work. It's it's a milestone. I like to think of it as an output of a well-run security practice. If you're doing all the security stuff, correctly um, and in line with your intentions. Compliance is just a matter of making sure you're checking the boxes of, yes, I verified this. Yes, I verified that. Um, It runs very similar to some work we're doing at Amazon around um, formal proofs. And our automated reasoning group has done a bunch of this uh, work. They've published a lot of academic papers and there's quite a few around automated reasoning and how they are using formal mathematical proofs to prove the security models are doing what they expect them to do. And then that surfaces in a bunch of products um, that AWS is or tools that AWS has specifically um, released in the analyzer series. But I think that type of effort is very complementary to compliance in the, hey, we need to do more than just roll this stuff out. We need to make sure that this is doing what we expect it to do. Compliance is that first step. It's that community agreement. All of us working on health information have agreed. HIPAA is the standard, is the baseline for this. Do more, but at very least, you have to legally do this. Um, But I think we can keep taking that further to make sure that what we're actually think we're doing is actually what we're doing. Wow, Mark sure covered a lot of ground on that one. 
The one that stuck with me from this conversation was this perspective that stronger passwords equate to stronger security. And I think that's a common myth. A lot of people still believe that if I just had made my, my password stronger, um, that bad thing wouldn't have happened. I think about the NIST 863 release, and I was looking today, can you believe it's been five years since 863B was published? And that's the NIST special publication that challenged a lot of longstanding, longstanding password norms, like uh, password complexity is actually harmful and not helpful. And it makes me wonder how much longer the world will keep holding on to these kind of legacy password controls that everybody thinks are good and keep getting perpetuated through key controls lists and need to, need to be challenged. Which ones have stuck with you? You know, I, I think about this one about identifying phishing emails. You know, the, um, the whole concept is we have a security breakdown and let's go look at which user was using the weak password to the point you just made or that was foolish enough to click on a phishing email. And, you know, I'm red-faced enough to admit that I have been phished before. It was Christmas time. It was probably 2010 or 11. I don't remember what year. And uh, I got a link from Amazon saying that my package had been delayed because of a weather event and click here to see what order was delayed. And I clicked on it and uh, immediately, I mean, I immediately knew. I clicked on it, it opened, this isn't the right site. And I went, ah. And I'm like, okay, I know everything I should know. I'm careful as can be. And I still got, got bit. Now, I knew I got bit and I was able to not, you know, not not fall prey to it all. But uh, yeah, kind of embarrassing. I immediately think less of you. Well, my credibility <laughs> is damaged forever, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> this makes me think of a joke we used to tell each other when I worked at Help Desk is that, uh, hey, this would be a pretty secure company if it wasn't for those pesky users. Like, why do we think users should be the front line against all phishing? It, it, they, they can't. They, they, the bad guys are getting too good at writing these things. And you remember the time whenever you have to just look for the misspelling and you knew that that was a fish to like filter out all the smart people and only the- We trained on it. Yeah, yeah we trained on fishing and I'm immune now. So let's get back to the rest of the interview with Mark. I wonder about how security professionals can think of security programs from an operational lens. You know, especially in large, complex corporate environments, you know, we're, we're, we're drumming all the time on revenue and, you know, NPS and all, all the things we use to measure customer engagement, you know, all those things. But here's security sort of out here focusing on the compliance island. And, you know, I think we could argue that we could do so much more as a, as a, as a discipline in that. I think we've come at it. I mean, we are where we are, so we need to work from there. Um, but if we had it all over to do all over again, um, I don't think we would we would take what is essentially the insurance based approach, right? Because even insurance does it better than than cybersecurity does. Uh, you know, so if you try to get car insurance, um, most jurisdictions, depending on the country, you're you know you are legally required to get some level of it. But when you talk to the insurance company, they've got so much data around the demographics of the the neighborhood you're in, where you're normally commuting, the likelihood of that vehicle being in an accident. Like they have all this information to be able to do a very solid, quantifiable risk assessment. And then they attach a dollar figure and say, you're going to pay us this much per month and we will insure you for this amount if something bad happens. That is not a great place to be from a customer perspective. From a business perspective and quantifying risk, that's a really nice thing because you've got really solid boundaries. But your customer interaction there is 
I'm paying you because I legally have to and because I'm afraid if something bad does go wrong that I'm up the creek. So I will pay you. Doesn't make you feel good. Nobody's like, yay, I get to pay for insurance today. Security isn't quite that bad in its pitch, but it's very similar. This ties back again. I'm just going to keep hitting on this because you phrased this so well, Jeremy, of that myth of like, well, nothing bad has happened yet, so we'll continue to invest at this level. That is, and that's where compliance has seen that advantage. Well, we know we need to invest more because otherwise here's a very quantifiable number. That's all from a negative perspective. If we had it all to do over again, I think coming at it from the positive of saying, you know, look, this is all really complicated stuff. All the, as far as technology goes, the security controls uh, that we'll put in place from a technology perspective and also from a procedural perspective for people are going to ensure that we can move forward as a business safely. So I want to kind of take us a little bit I want to talk about the concept of security theater. And, uh, you know, we just, we just went and looked at, you know, Wikipedia, a security theater, uh, the practice of taking security measures considered to provide a feeling of improved security while not providing value to achieve it. We think of the example of airport security in many countries. Does it really make us safer? I would argue it does make us somewhat safer. But, uh, you know, the perception of people having about this is good security because I see stuff happening. It's funny, you know, Robert, you went right to the airport uh, security. So I spent some time at our equivalent of um, the NTSB here in Canada, working with airline investigators and stuff. And it's absolutely fascinating how that culture works. Um, but from the people side of things, the thing that always stands out to me is the requirement to take off your shoes uh, when it comes to America. And it's only America as far as I've ever encountered traveling in the world. And all that comes back from one case. Right. There was the one case when someone tried to smuggle, smuggle an explosive through their shoes and it, and it failed and it was caught in security before people were required to take off their shoes. But the response was, we need to do something. What we're going to do is we're going to make people take off their shoes. So for one case, millions and millions and millions and millions of travelers since then in the 20 years since then or however many it's been have had to remove their shoes in order to prevent something that was caught without somebody removing their shoes. And I think the challenge with that, I understand the psychology requirement, and I'm not advocating for, uh, you know, removing any of these measures necessarily. But I think from a security practitioner perspective, this ties very much back to the core audience that we're trying to, to talk to in the show of people within a, a, in an organization, in an enterprise, is you have to be very careful as to what you impose on your users or try to implement within your environment, because you only get so many things you can do and get people to buy in on, you better make sure they're worth it. And I think that's the challenge is sometimes we do things either in public scenarios or within our companies that we think is going to make people feel better or is going to have the appearance or drives a nice metric, but it doesn't actually move the needle for us or raise the security bar. And I think that actually has an adverse effect. It's going to reduce your security bar because it erodes that trust. And the next time you try to do something with value, people may not be paying as much attention as they should be. So, Robert, do you think third-party cybersecurity questionnaires are a form of security theater? Could they be, or could they be implemented in a way that they're not? Do they add value in the way that they are intended to all the time, some of the time, none of the time? I think, uh, I, you know, as you know, Jerry, binary questions are hard for me. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it ultimately comes down to what level of assurance does it offer me around the actual effectiveness of the answer? So I would say, you give me an answer. What's the proof behind the answer? 
if the proof is absent, then I don't know if the answer is real or not. So I would say in that in that aspect, not much. I think in the aspect of of a system that goes beyond the questionnaire, possibly, but then you're into assurance, and there's so much more involved in assurance than just the question and the answer. So yes, probably more security theater in my mind. I think the challenge with survey questions in general is you got to think of the context of the people answering it. As soon as somebody says, I know I'm supposed to answer this, as opposed to this is my answer. Weird example. You probably figured this out. We've been chatting for a while now. I love weird examples. Um, I read an absolutely bizarrely fascinating exam, uh, breakdown of the smiley face rating system for airport bathrooms. The reason why that's effective is the sheer volume. It's a very simple interaction. It's either one, one to three or one to five. You know, was the bathroom clean and acceptable? Yes or no. Uh, or not yes or no, but one to five, you know, smiley face, happy, no sticky face, green. Um, individually, they're meaningless uh, because it depends. Somebody could have a bad day. Most of us traveling are having a bad day. Um, could be just a bad time before the clean, whatever the case may be. But the point of the system was they gathered just a sheer volume of metrics, gave them enough accuracy, of course, the, oh, over the trending that this very subjective measure actually turned into something valuable. And I think the challenge with the survey stuff is it's always scale. We go too deep, too far, um, and we can't scale it up as, as broadly as we need to to eliminate those biases. Because if you send me a survey question and I know the context of the survey, like, well, I know Jeremy's running the survey and it's about Robert's program and I want Robert to look good. So yes, best answer is going to be given as opposed to my actual answer is like, oh, Robert really messed up this quarter, um, right? And so I'm going to give that because I don't, I have a personal connection to Robert and I don't want him to feel bad. And I think that's where things get really muddy. So Mark, as we, as we approach the end of our time together, I'm just, you know, what have we not asked or talked about that you're thinking, wow, they should have asked me that or we should have talked about that. What I love is that we focused on sort of the bigger perspective. Um, I think the one um, that had sort of been tossed around that we didn't get to was, the question of, you know, is security everybody's responsibility? I'm going to ask both of you. Is security is everybody's uh, responsibility? Is that a myth? Is that bull? What, what's your perspective on that, Jeremy? I'm all in on the user having a responsibility to not be the weakest link. But it's also, I think it's, it's too easy sometimes to say, look, if we get breached, it's going to be because a user made a mistake and not because our program had a problem. Um, so I, I don't know, sort of, I guess I think it's safe to say, yeah, I'm in the boat of it is a safe thing and not a myth. Robert security is everybody's responsibility. Yes or no. Maybe. Oh, boo. Oh, boo. I'll never be attacked from stage for saying it, but it's cliche. There's so much more. And yes, the people are part of it and awareness is great. Let's engage our people. Absolutely. But there's so much more. Just it's an easy answer. Have we done enough to make that cliche a reality? No, no, I don't think so. I think uh, engaging the organization around the problem is valuable. How many uh, bullets are in our gun? How many arrows are in our quiver? Firing the right arrows for the right problem, not not wasting them. I think that's that's the opportunity is to engage everyone on security on the right part of the problem. It's very similar to eating healthy, but if we don't provide easy access to healthy food, simple recipes for people to follow, quick ways to get healthy takeout, then we have failed, uh, you know, to, to enable that. And it's the same for security. If it's everybody's responsibility, it's the security team's 
uh, it's incumbent on the security team to make sure that it's possible to do that. And it's through education, it's through easy controls, um, but really it's about communication. So thanks to Mark for chatting with us today. You know, Robert, we really covered a lot of ground on this episode. I know you said it once, but it's true. Yeah, we really did. I mean, perception in practice almost. If you look at the topics around any security conference, it's usually the latest attacks. The threat actor, the threat actor, you know, the new exploit. It's not about having a conversation with the people to make them aware of how much benefit they could have if they looked at their controls in a different way, the controls mandated by security policies, making sure that people understand why they take actions the way they do and are they doing the right things. Yeah, and I know we talked about it, about this sort of cybersecurity cliche that security is everyone's responsibility. And Mark challenged us. He asked this question. He said, do you think we are doing enough to make that cliche a reality? Do you think we're doing enough to make security everyone's responsibility? I don't know the answer, but I think it was a, it was a good challenge to us all. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thanks again for listening to Trust Versus presented by iTrust. Make sure you follow this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to to see how we're going to challenge trust next. Take care, everyone.